Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. through the book of Colossians. And I promised you at the end of last week that we were going to start this morning by talking about everything that Paul describes, his very high Christology, and that we would go through it piece by piece. But in order to understand what Paul is describing when he says that it is God who delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in order to understand how huge a transition that is 
in order to understand how far God had to go to get us, to bring us into the kingdom of his beloved son, I think we have to go back and take a look at the biblical anthropology again and stress what kind of humans we were when God found us. Because the more you understand about what we were like when God encountered us, the more you understand how phenomenal the grace of God is. In other words, this morning is going to be Soteriology 101. Do you know the word Soteriology? It's a combination of two Greek words. Soteria has to do with salvation. Logia, words, words about Soteriology is words about learning about, teaching about salvation. How is it that human beings get saved? The Bible is very specific about how it is that people get saved. And the more that you understand about what the Bible says about how people get saved, the more grand and glorious and overwhelming and astounding the grace of God is. Only if you understand the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation and the absolute depravity of the human beings that he chose to save, only then can you appreciate this little phrase from Paul that God delivered us, that he transferred us from the domain of darkness. That word domain there is actually exousia in the Greek It means the power. It has to do with force. It has to do with this overwhelming darkness that encompasses the world. And there is an actual power, an actual force behind this overwhelming darkness. And so God transferred us from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son into the kingdom of everlasting life. And so the question is, how did he do that? Did he interrupt your life and tell you, now this is available. Eternal life is available to you, but you need to get busy. You need to clean yourself up. You need to improve yourself. You need to go join a church. You need to go genuflect enough times. You need to go do something. You need to go apply the law to your life. You need to go do something and then God will save you in response. Is that what the Bible says? Well, the answer is no. What the Bible says is he found you when you were at your absolute worst. He found you when you were deeply depraved and sinful and rebellious and hard-hearted and an enemy of God. And that's how he found you and saved you anyway. That's why here at GCA we keep saying it's grace. It's all grace because it has to be grace because it can't be anything in you because when God found you, There was nothing good in you. Paul has already told us in the book of Romans. And in fact, when Micah started reading out of Romans this morning, I was a tad disappointed he didn't go on and read the whole anthropology that Paul lays out in the book of Romans, that we are actually incapable of seeking God. 
He says, there's no one that stirs himself up. There's no one that seeks after God. There's none that does good. No, not one. Which means you're not the one. Which means absolutely nobody does anything good and godly and holy. And therefore, if there is a relationship between you, the dead, depraved sinner, dead in your trespasses and sins, living in this domain of darkness, and then you get to live eternally in the splendor of God and be joint heir with Christ and everything that God has prepared for Christ for eternity, if that happens, it can't be you. It just can't be. It has to be that God was nothing but overwhelmingly good to you. Now, technically, I could sit down at this point because you've just heard the good news. Amen. But... I'm going to keep you here another hour because I like it. <laughs> I like the theology of the Bible. I like knowing that it was all God. I like knowing that it's the grace of God and the kindness of God and the sovereignty of God that saved me because that means since God doesn't change, I can't mess up what he's already done for me. And if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, but if you're anything like me, you've tried to mess it up. And you can't mess it up because it is an absolutely sovereign, good, and glorious God who determined it in the first place, who wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Have I said anything yet that's not biblical? Everything I've said so far is in the Bible, and I'm going to prove that to you this morning. So that you come away this morning with a very firm soteriology. So that you do understand what the Bible says about how it is that God saves people. And how it is that Paul can write that God himself transferred us from the domain of darkness to the glorious light of the kingdom of his son. And you will notice that Paul did not say God and you accomplished this. The only thing you brought to the party was your rebellion. The only thing you added was your sinful estate. And yet God, by himself, by his sovereignty, for his own good pleasure, saved wretched people like me and especially Steve. <laughs> and his wife amended. <laughs> All right, so even though we are technically in Colossians chapter 1, Let's go back to what we've been learning over the last few months because we're in the middle of a study where we have been comparing and contrasting the book of Ephesians with the book of Colossians. So turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this is about as clear a statement about how people get saved as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And if it sounds familiar to you, it's because it's everything I just said. Chapter 2, verse 1, the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When God sees you, he does not see you as capable. He doesn't see you as doing the best you can. What he sees you as is dead. 
D-E-A-D, dead. Big red letters, large font, dead. That's how he sees you, which means you're incapable of doing anything because you're dead. And your deadness renders you spiritually incapable of doing anything, which is why God does not start with, you get busy. If you think that that's the way that God deals with people, then you don't understand what dead is. Go up to a graveyard someday and yell at the people there and see if you can get them to do anything. I'll save you the trouble. They're not going to do anything. Why? They're dead. And that is specifically the language that Paul chose to use in order to say that you were Prior to God saving you, you were dead. Why? Because of your trespasses and sins. The multiple ways that you had rebelled against God and his law and his righteousness. Because of your complete lack of holiness, you were considered spiritually dead. In which you formerly walked, and now he's going to describe what your walk looked like, what your life, what your behavior looked like in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So you're walking just like everybody else in the world. There's no difference between you and every other dead sinner walking around, little bags of meat walking around on the planet just sinning their brains out. And that was you too. Did you like the description of little bags of meat? I'm not really sure where that came from. But walking after the course of this world, what does the course of this world look like? It is according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Satan himself. That's how you naturally conducted your life. That's how you naturally, by the flesh, walked out your life according to the prince of the power of the air. Can you see now why Paul in writing to the Colossian church would say you were walking in the domain of darkness. That's how you were living your life. The power, the influence, the force of darkness in this world had completely consumed you. And that's how you were walking after the prince of the power of the air who is the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So everybody who is disobedient to God, everybody who works contrary to the righteousness, holiness of God, they are all walking in disobedience. Paul calls them the children or the sons of disobedience. And the reason they are disobedient is because they are walking after the prince of the power of the air and they are living their lives in this domain of darkness. Isn't this a feel-good message so far this morning? <laughs> but you need to understand that that's how God sees you or else you'll never really understand how glorious the good news is. I grew up on a gospel that was sort of kind of good news, I guess. If you choose Jesus, he'll choose you back. If you make him your Lord and Savior, then he'll kind of sort of give you the power to improve yourself. And then he's still going to judge you on the basis of you. That's not really good news. 
But the gospel is good news because it is based on how bad you are and how good God was to save you anyway. The real gospel, the biblical gospel says that you yourself, verse 3 you were among them, among the sons of disobedience. And that's how we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of all humanity. Children of wrath. That's how we were seen by God, as deserving the very wrath of God. So if you are naturally walking in the domain of darkness, walking after Satan himself, and a child deserving of wrath, what can you do to save you? He has just described your deadness, your spiritual incapability, and you're in the dark, and you're walking after the course of the disobedient children of this world and you are sons of disobedience who deserve the wrath of God how could God under those circumstances turn to you and say now clean yourself up do slightly better than you're doing now and maybe I'll accept you on that basis that's an impossibility not only can you not improve yourself but in order for God to accept you you would have to improve yourself all the way to the glory of God you'd have to be perfectly righteous perfectly spotless in the book of Colossians we're going to read in Paul's very high Christology that we are going to stand before God spotless and unblemished and all I'm driving at this morning is, how does that happen? How does that transfer happen? How does that deliverance occur where we are dead, depraved, darkened, walking after the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air and dead in trespasses and sins and deserving of wrath? How do we get from there to spotless and unblemished? How does that happen? It can't happen by us cleaning us up because... If we started out like this, then we're deeply blemished. So how do we get that clean? That's what Paul is going to tell us in chapter 1 of Colossians. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2 also gives us the answer. But God. That's the answer. The answer isn't, but you fixed you. But you cleaned you up. But you did a whole lot better than you used to do. And God grades on a curve, so he accepted the fact that you were trying really hard. The Bible doesn't say any of that. It says God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as the result of works, 
so that no one can boast because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are transferred by God because of his loving kindness and in order for God to demonstrate the glory of his own grace all for his good pleasure. In other words, it's God, 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 more God, all God. God did it all and you can't take any credit at all for your salvation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at this. Starting in chapter 10, Paul is describing the necessity to put on the whole armor of God. Chapter 6, verse 10. And the reason that we need to put on the whole armor of God is because we need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But then look at verse 12. This is very consistent Pauline theology. The same way that he said we live in the domain of darkness, now he's going to describe what that domain of darkness looks like. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our problem here on the planet, our walking through this society, this present evil age that we live in, is not just a flesh and blood problem. Paul argues that there is a satanic influence in this world. Here, may I demonstrate that for you? If you look at the primary social movements that are happening in the world, and especially in America, especially in the West, right now, if you go down the list, whether that's quote-unquote equality in marriage, whether that's you get to choose what gender you want to be, whether that's even critical race theory. If you look at all the things that are at the forefront of our politics, our conversation, and the social justice movement at this moment in the world, our very, very liberal government is chasing all those things and those things which they consider so very positive for human beings and for the society and for the world. Every single one of them is 180 degrees contrary to what the Bible says. Why? Why is that happening? Why is the world so enamored with these things that run absolutely contrary to God's word? Why is that? Because the prince of the power of the air is at work. This is not just a flesh and blood issue. This is because the prince of the power of the air is in charge of this domain of darkness. Here we'll let Paul say it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but our battle, our struggle, our wrestling is against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness. The world forces of this darkness. Cosmokratos is the Greek word. That compound word is the word for dark and the word for world. This dark world is what it is that we wrestle against. And finally, he says, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So now you can see why 
the devil is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Because in the heavenlies themselves, here in this domain of darkness, Satan holds sway every place we look. That is our condition, our sinfulness, our depravity, our rebellion. And then that is the condition that we find ourselves in, living in the domain of darkness, living in a world that is just overcome by the rulers of the darkness of this world. What hope do we have? How could we possibly, given that situation, that description which the Bible provides for us, how could we possibly, in that situation, fix ourselves? We have no hope, especially considering that there's no one who stirred himself up to seek God. There's none that does good, no, not one. And I think seeking God would be a very good thing to do. And nobody stirs himself up to do that because we all live in the domain of darkness and we all are dead in our trespasses and sins and we are all being influenced by the rulers of the darkness of this world. Have I pounded that hard enough yet? Because that was all introduction. So that you understand how it is that God sees us. So that you understand biblically what the biblical anthropology is. The Bible doesn't say anything positive or good about people. The Bible is not up, up, up with people. The Bible doesn't ever say that. The Bible says everything we have just read. That is our natural estate. That's where God found us. And that is why it is so astounding in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that we read, For he, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness. Thank God. Because if he didn't do it, it's not getting done. If he didn't deliver us, we're incapable of delivering ourselves. And the Bible has already told us how incapable we are because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because of our spiritual deadness, and because of the environment in which we live. And yet, Paul could declare in this very simple, straightforward sentence that God himself transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he did that all by himself. So that it's all redounding to the glory of his grace. So that through the ages to come, he gets all the worship, he gets all the glory, he gets all the praise and adoration because he's the one who did it. And the only reason we're going to be standing in his presence for all of eternity is because he did it and we stand there as trophies to his grace. We are living examples of the grace of God that he would save somebody like you or Steve. We are in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the beginning of Paul's very high Christology. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom the beloved son in whom we have redemption that's why we sang redeemed how I love to proclaim it redeemed through the blood of the lamb that's a very theological statement that hymn makes because Paul here says exactly that through Christ we have redemption it is a word that means apolatrosis it's a word that means to buy out apo means from it means to pay a ransom price in order to buy something so that you can take it to yourself and Paul is going to tell us that Christ himself not only was the ransom price but then he laid himself down to pay the ransom price so that he could buy us off the slave market of sin out of this domain of darkness so that we could be delivered into the kingdom that he himself enlightens and he did that by redeeming us and the consequence of that redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. Do you remember a moment ago we read we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so part of the process of bringing us to life, regenerating us, standing us up on our feet again. Part of that process is he has to solve the sin problem. And he did. And the way that he solved our sin problem was to pay our sin debt for us so that we don't have to pay it because if we paid it it would just be hell forever and so he took on the wrath of God he paid that ransom price so that we are fully redeemed fully ransomed fully bought out of the domain of darkness and that gave us the forgiveness of sins and he is the image of the invisible God last week I took a few minutes to talk about that word image do you remember the Greek word I taught you icon. icon he is the very express icon which means the exact reflection the exact duplicate the word icon presupposes that there is a prototype that there is something first that is then being reflected by the icon. And so Jesus is the perfect demonstration of who God is and what God's like walking around here on the planet. And of course, as I said last week, part of Paul's argument by using the word icon is that he's saying God is invisible. Nobody has ever seen him. And yet we've seen Jesus Christ. We've touched him with our own hands. We know that he is real. Therefore, God is real because the prototype has to exist. And since he is the icon of the invisible God, the invisible God must be because the icon exists. This is a very important word that he has used here. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. And he is the prototokos. He is the firstborn of all creation now that does not mean that Jesus was the first one that God created 
Instead, what it's talking about is absolute preeminence. And Paul will say that in just a moment. In fact, here I'll prove it to you. If you go to verse 18, where Paul is describing Christ as the head of the body, the church, he uses that word prototokos again and says he is the beginning. He identifies himself as the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the very beginning and he is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And that's exactly what that prototokos word means. He has preeminence in everything. He's first. He's primary. He's the top. He's the voice through whom the Trinitarian God said, let there be light. He is the very image of the creator God. And he is above everything and everyone. And everything and everyone exists because he exists. Here, I'll prove it to you. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created. There, see, I didn't make anything up. By him, all things were created. Anything you can think of, anything you can name, any part, any portion of this creation, he's responsible for the fact that it was created. He created everything, both in the heavens and on the earth. That means all people, all angels, all substance, all physicality. All heavenly stuff, the hosts of heaven, all created by him, for him, for his glory, because that's how he chose to do it. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. Or rulers or authorities. Remember a moment ago we read out of Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In that case, Paul was talking about demonic principalities and demonic powers. We don't know here if Paul is describing positive authorities, positive dominions and thrones, or whether he is also saying both the good and the evil powers and thrones, whatever powers exist on the planet, he's the creator of it, he's superior to it, he controls it, and that's a great deal of comfort to me to know that the prince of the power of the air, who I once walked like, who I once acted like, who I once very much looked like, he has delivered me from that prince of the power of the air and even the authorities and the dominion and the power of the principalities that the prince of the power of the air once had have no control over me because they all fall under the jurisdiction of the God who made them, and that's Christ. Pretty remarkable. How saved are you? By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. That's why he did it. That's why you exist. 
That's why the world exists. That's why the principalities exist. The whole of creation exists for him. It's nice that we get to experience and enjoy some parts of his creation, but the whole of his creation exists for him. It's not for you. And you, because you are a creature, you are part of his creation, and you exist for him. And everybody who exists, exists for him. Because ultimately, he is either going to save or judge his entire creation to demonstrate both his holiness and his righteousness. He's going to show both his wrath and his mercy and his grace. And he's going to show all of that through his creation. So the whole creation exists for him. He made it by himself for himself. That's a very, very high view of Christ. And it's good to know that we're on his side. It's good to know that the one who created everything is also the one who saved us. And if the one who created absolutely everything, including principalities and powers, including the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places, if he's the one who did all that, can he protect you from all that? Can he save you from all that? Can he redeem you from all of that? Well, absolutely, because it's all his. By him, all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. That means before the very first thing was created, he is. He exists. When Moses encountered the burning bush, and the burning bush said, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses asked a very logical question. He said, well, who should I say sent me? I mean, after all, the Egyptians have a whole pantheon of gods. Which god are you? Should I go say the god of the Nile? Should I go say the god of the frogs? Should I say the sun god? Which god are you? It's a very good question. And God's answer was, I am. Which implies all those gods of Egypt am not. They don't exist. I'm the only god who actually is. I am. And that's all you need to know about me. You go tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. Well, same thing here now. The language of I amness, Paul is now applying to Jesus. That again is how high his Christology is. That he is before all things. Which means that he exists because he exists. And everything else exists because he exists. And that if he didn't exist, nothing else exists. Because he's before everything, and that's why he made everything, and everything exists for him. And in fact, now Paul is going to say everything exists because he empowers everything. If he ever stopped empowering it, not only would the universe 
disappear, there'd just be a vast, empty nothingness without form, without void, like there was at the beginning of the book of Genesis. So he has to sustain everything. He made everything, he's before everything, and in him all things consist. The NASB says all things hold together. And then on top of that, he is also the head of the body, the church. When we read the Ephesians letter, Paul went to some length to say that we are the body. We are the body of Christ, and everybody is an individual member. And that none of us get to say, well, I'm a better member. I'm a more attractive member. I'm a more comely, is the word, more comely member. I'm a more important member. He says, all of us are members of the body. And none of us get to say, well, I could get along without him. But the one thing that Paul never says is that we are the head of the body. We might be a hand or a foot or a knee. We might be an internal organ or a dodgy left elbow. But none of us get to be the head. Christ is the head of the church. He has dominion in his church. He gets all the glory in his church. He gets all the worship in his church. It's not about Christ and me. It's not about Christ and your work. It's not about Christ and some behavioral modification or some program or some number of steps that you got to take to get yourself saved. It's not about Christ and your choice, your will, the Roman road. You make a profession. It's not about anything. It's about Christ. He has absolute headship. That's why I drove home the idea of prototokos. He is the first. He is the foremost. He is before everything. He is higher than everything. He created everything for himself. And within the church especially, he and he alone is the head of the church. And we meet to worship him, to learn about him, to sing about him, to praise him, to cry out to him, to ask him, to thank him because he is the reason, the purpose for why the church exists. He is the head of the church. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning. I think Paul at that point was just kind of running out of words and thought, how do I describe the everythingness of Christ and the preeminence of Christ? And the pre-existence of Christ. And the, so he said, you know what? He's the beginning of everything. Whatever you can name, he's the beginning of it. And then Jesus, in describing himself in the book of Revelation, not only says he's the beginning of everything, he says, I'm also the end of everything. And I fill up everything in the middle. That's why the phrase, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn, the primary one, firstborn from the dead. Okay, this proves the definition that I have been giving 
to this phrase, firstborn of the dead. Because if you read in the Old Testament, there are some resurrections in the Old Testament. So if we're talking about timeline here, if we're talking about sequence of events, Christ is not the first to resurrect. In fact, Christ himself raised Lazarus before his own resurrection. So he's not saying in terms of time he's the firstborn from the dead. What he's saying is he is the primary one who is born from the dead because if he isn't born from the dead, nobody's born from the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection is the guarantee of resurrection for everybody else. Our Christian hope that we are getting up out of our grave again or that we're going to go through the instantaneous change when he comes back is all based in the fact that he was the first fruit of the resurrection. When he got up, he guaranteed our eternal life. And that's the language that Paul is using here when he says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And why? Why is he the firstborn from the dead? Why is he the very beginning? Why is he the head of the church? Why is he before all things and then through him and in him all things hold together? Why did he choose to do all this? So that he himself might come to have preeminence in everything. Everything. Last week, I ended the week by saying, whatever the politics of the day are, don't be afraid because the governments of this world bow to Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid of Satan because Satan himself bows to Jesus Christ. Don't worry about your electric bill because your electric bill bows to Jesus Christ. Whatever you can think of, whatever you can name in the whole wide world, if it exists, he made it. He made it for his own purpose and his own glory. And it, no matter what it is, bows to Jesus Christ because he has preeminence in absolutely everything. So now let me ask you a question. Is that true for you? Is that true in your life? I mean, you can see why Jesus walked around saying things like, take no thought for tomorrow. The things of tomorrow will care for themselves. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Why, whenever he saw his apostles and they were afraid, like when he was walking on the water in the storm, first thing he said to them is, don't be afraid. It's me. It's why Paul would say, fret not. Which means don't worry. It doesn't mean play a fretless guitar. It means don't, don't worry about anything. It's going to be okay because absolutely everything exists by him, through him, and for him. He has preeminence over everything. Therefore, whatever you're going through, whatever your life is about, whatever you're encountering, whatever you come across in this life, it is exactly what he determined for you at this moment. He's still in charge of it, the same way he's in charge of absolutely everything, and it is accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it to you in the first place, because he has preeminence 
in everything, which means there's nothing that you can name that he doesn't have preeminence over. Nothing. You mean sickness, Jim? Yes, I mean sickness. You mean the day we die? Yes, the day you die. You mean the fact that I buy lottery tickets and never win? Yes, that too. He has preeminence over absolutely everything. You mean over this corrupt government that is ruling us in Washington right now? Yeah, he's in charge of it. And he is steering it toward the end that he has already told us in the Bible is coming. I kind of look at it and say he's driving it a little faster now. <laughs> he has preeminence in everything. So you can consider him to be part and parcel of everything you go through, everything you have, every decision you make. He has preeminence. He has first standing in absolutely every corner of your life. Verse 19, and why is that the case? That he has preeminence in absolutely everything? Because it was the Father's good will, the Father's good pleasure for all of the complete fullness, that word is full to overflowing, that the overflowing of God in his goodness, in his grace, in his provision, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his judgment, all of that to overflowing would all dwell in Jesus Christ. That's God's determination. And it's God's good pleasure. It's what God chose to do. He actually decided that everything was going to be wrapped up through Jesus Christ. Through him, verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. Astounding. So here's God. Here's this corrupt creation. Here are these corrupt people running around in this corrupt creation. This fallen sinful world. And God decides that he's going to reconcile some of those people to himself. So much so that Paul would say that Christianity itself is the ministry of reconciliation. And then he says, not that God needs to be reconciled. God's fine. God's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He doesn't have to reconcile with you. You need to reconcile with him. He's the one who's going to judge you if you're not reconciled to him. And so he is going to do the work of reconciliation to bring you to himself so that you can stand before him spotless and unblemished. And the way he's going to accomplish that, the way he's going to accomplish reconciliation between himself and his creation is all going to be through Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to God except through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. The theology throughout the Bible is very consistent. Jesus is the way to God and the only way to God. And there is no other way to God. Why? Because that was God's good pleasure. That's what God chose to do. That's how he set it up. 
and he set it up that way so that Christ would get all the glory and all the honor, all the praise eternally. Which means that not only Paul, but also God has a very high Christology. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. By the way, notice the verbs that Paul used here. The same way that he said that God himself delivered us from the domain of darkness and then transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God is the actor there. God is the only actor. God is the one doing it. Notice that Paul says the same thing here when he says that through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. Who's the reconciler there? God is the reconciler. He's the only actor. Notice that it does not say God is going to give you the ability to reconcile yourself to himself. It doesn't say that. It says God's going to reconcile you to himself. He's the actor. He does it all. Because, as I explained 45 minutes ago, you can't. You don't have the ability, you don't have the capability, you're too busy running around like a chicken with his head cut off in this domain of darkness, sinning willy-nilly, just, that's you, that's silly, stupid, pointless, sinful you, how are you going to reconcile yourself to a thrice holy God, an eternally perfect righteous judge, how are you going to reconcile yourself, you can't, so the actor has to be God. And it has to be God's grace and love that is the motivator for why he does it. Because he's doing what he's pleased to do. Whatever is according to his will and his good pleasure, that's what he does. And thank God part of his will and good pleasure was to save a wretch like me. Yes. How can you just sit there and stare at me? It's the best news you're going to hear ever through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross if you are in the domain of darkness dead in your trespasses and sins constantly rebellious against God and God is righteous and holy then you are contrary to God and there can't be any peace all there can be is againstness all there can be is judgment. But there can't be peace, eternal peace, lasting peace, final peace. That cannot exist between the dead sinner and a righteous holy God. So what did God do? He created a way for you to be at peace with himself. And he did it through sending Jesus Christ to that cross on Calvary. And through the blood of Christ formed the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. And as a consequence, God not only reconciled you to himself, but he made peace between you and God. So that you now get to run to the throne of grace crying, Abba, Father 
father and there's actual peace there. He's not mad at you. He's not waiting to judge you. He's waiting to continually reconcile you and forgive you and be gracious to you because of you. No, because of himself and because of his grace and because of his kindness, because he's in the enterprise of glorifying himself and demonstrating the phenomenal grace that only he can show. Through him he's reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. Through him, and then the NASB adds two words that are in italics here, I say, just for emphasis, because Paul is emphasizing the point here, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Everything that gets reconciled, gets reconciled through the finished work of Christ and through the blood of his cross. That's how anything gets reconciled to God. And whose idea was it to kill the Prince of Life? Wasn't my idea. Jeff, you come up with that? Wasn't our idea. Whose idea was it? It was God's idea from the start because it was God who was reconciling us because it is God who is forgiving us because it is God who is redeeming us because it is God who is transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son it's God 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 it's all God it's continually God it's constantly God and it's not you which is why we say amazing grace Amen. How sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. And when I say saved, I don't just mean he tried to save you. I don't mean he gave it a good shot. He attempted to save you. He fully, utterly, completely did everything necessary to save you and establish you eternally. He did everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and utter, complete redemption. Christ is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly, and he didn't try to do anything. He accomplished it, which is why hanging on the cross he could say, it's finished. I did it. Have you ever heard anything so amazing in your whole life? No. You go out there into this domain of darkness, they're not going to tell you that. They're going to scare you. They're going to tell you the world is a frightening place so they can control you. But here is this magnificent grace and freedom in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. This is where we're going to end. Paul is now going to say everything that I labored to say, but he's going to manage to say it in one sentence. And although you were formerly alienated, what does that mean? Though you had no part in God, though you were completely separate from God, utterly alienated from righteousness and holiness and everything that is truly genuinely good, and even though you used to be alienated and hostile in mind, you hated God. Not only were you alienated from God, but you hated him. 
and because you weren't righteous and holy you hated everything that was righteous and holy and you were hostile in your mind and you were engaged in evil doing evil deeds there that's how God sees you that's how God found you when he found you this was you alienated from everything that is righteous and holy hostile in your mind toward righteous holiness and godliness and actively engaged in every evil stupid thing you could think of doing constantly that's how you were when he found you and yet says verse 22 and yet he has now reconciled you oh what good news and notice again he he reconciled you because you couldn't you're busy being hostile in your mind you're busy doing your evil deeds yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach amen what how can you sit there and stare at me we began this by saying we're hostile we're in the dark we're alienated we're sinful we're dead in our trespasses and sins we're walking after the course of this world we're walking after the prince of the power of the air and the end result is spotless unblemished that's a long way and beyond reproach I don't know about you but I can think of my own life and I think of things that are mighty darn reproachable I mean I wake up some nights going oh because I remember where I've been and what I've done and me me I'm going to stand in front of a God who has encased himself in life that no man approaches. He said that, not me. And I'm going to stand there and not fry. I'm going to stand there and not be judged. I'm going to stand there. He's going to look on me and he's going to see the blood of Christ on me. And he's going to love me the way that he loves his beloved son and make me a joint heir with everything that he has provided for Jesus Christ himself. And he is going to see me as spotless and unblemished and without any reproach who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Yes. That's the Pauline theology. Once you are in Christ and Christ is in you, he's going to save you, but he's going to save you utterly and completely and then righteousify you to the point where you are spotless and unblemished standing in front of a completely holy God. That's Paul's very high Christology. And it's an enormous transference from our old dead dark state to making us qualified to stand in the kingdom of Jesus Christ the righteous he did it all the father determined it all the son has already done the work necessary to do it we are fully redeemed we are fully blood bought we are fully forgiven 
and therefore we have nothing to look forward to except the glorious future that he has prepared for us. And so Paul would say in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's where we will start. I hope that if you have any grasp of what I've said this morning, that you can see why Paul would say, stay steadfast in that. Why would you depart that? Why would you leave that? That's the very core of your eternal hope. Stay standing, stay steadfast, stay planted in that. And this evil world is going to throw everything it can at you in order to try to steer you away from that hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul has to say, stand in it, stay in it, because that's your only hope of eternal redemption, is that it's Christ, it's only Christ, it's all Christ. He gets all the glory, he gets all the honor. That's what the Father determined. We just need to get in line with what the Father has already determined to do. So, is it grace? Yeah, it has to be. It can't possibly be anything else. Was that the Father's plan since before eternity? Yeah. Yeah. That's what he decided. And it is all about and all wrapping up in reconciling us to God through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why we spend so much time just preaching that gospel over and over again. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.